Hey everyone, Adam here. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that although the first season of Dogs in Our World is almost over, my work is only beginning. So, put me to work, all right? Check out my services page at dogsinourworld.com. If you want to pick my brain or maybe chat with me about your dog, simply use dogsinourworld.com to schedule a personal Skype or FaceTime chat with me. If you live in the Seattle-Tacoma area of Washington, schedule a home consultation or invite me to speak to your group or organization. So check out my services page at dogsinourworld.com and see if I can do what I love most, which is to teach people about dogs and also talk about what dogs can teach us. Again, check out my services page at dogsinourworld.com and discover how I can help you, your dog, or your organization. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the season finale of Dogs in Our World. I'm Adam Winston. Yes, that's right. After a year of learning and growing and being stretched, as Temple Grandin says, we're finally nearing the end of our journey. What an exciting and rewarding experience this show has been. It's crazy, crazy how much I've learned. What a ride. This installment, this final installment, is about dogs and science. First, we'll meet our very legit guest and have him introduce us to the field of applied animal behavior. Then we'll get our history fix and also learn about the current state of canine behavior science. There was so much stuff in my interview, I had to break this final episode into two parts. So let's get started. You are listening to Dogs in Our World, a show that explores the history, science, and importance of the domestic dog. Here's your host, Adam Winston. Today's guest has taught me a lot about a burgeoning field called applied animal behavior and how we can use applied animal behavior to not only better understand, but even help the dogs and people in our world. Uh, he's an excellent teacher and one of the best professors I've ever had. Uh, there was just there is so much good information in this interview that I couldn't justify keeping any of it from you. So instead of chopping this thing up and mixing and matching it like I usually do, I'm going to go ahead and let most of this conversation roll. And I split this extended interview into two parts. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and just get going with part one. I'll cut in a couple times, but then we're really just going to let it roll. There's just so much good stuff in this. We got to put on our thinking caps. All right, all right, let's get going. Okay, my name is um, Dr. Jim Ha. I've been a uh, an animal behaviorist, um, mostly in academia for all my life almost. My dad was an animal behaviorist, so I was sort of brought up with it in the family. Um, I have a PhD from Colorado State University in zoology and animal behavior, uh, 1989. And basically, I moved shortly thereafter to the University of Washington. And I've been a faculty member at the University of Washington since 1990. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was originally going to do a studio interview with Dr. Ha, but just after he moved to the Florida Keys, his house was flooded in a hurricane, and he had to cancel his business trip to Seattle. So sitting in uh, opposite corners of the United States, he generously recorded this interview with me over Skype. And um, I did do my best to try to clean up the sound quality, but I just wanted to let you know that we did have a good excuse for phoning this one in, as they say. Back to Dr. Jim Ha and his introduction. I retired officially, at least, from that position, and I'm, I'm now an emeritus research uh, professor uh, in the, at the University of Washington. But for many years, along with my sort of academic um, research in primarily in social behavior in primates, um, in crows, I've done a lot of research with killer whales. I've always had a, an interest in dogs and cats and in the field that we now call applied animal behavior. Dr. Haas says that uh, nearly all of his career now is moving in that direction and studying dogs and cats. 
he and his wife Reneha developed new courses at University of Washington to teach students about the field of applied animal behavior. And uh, though there are many subdisciplines within animal behavior science, Dr. Hot told me that there's zoo behavior, conservation behavior, and uh, of course, Temple Grandin specialty, livestock behavior. Uh, Dr. Ha, however, he primarily focuses on the animals that live in our homes, such as the dogs and cats in our world. My big goals in all of the public speaking and education that I do is to try to teach people from veterinarians to owners to dog trainers to anybody who will listen that there is a modern science of animal behavior. And um, it's very active in academia, uh, mostly with wild animals and so on. We read about it all the time in, in uh, Science News and uh, NOVA and NPR. And there's always a lot of fascination with the behavior of wild animals. And we really are developing the ability to apply that um, big field of, of, of animal behavior science to the animals around us. And that's really fallen by the wayside. And so what I've been wanting to do is really teach people about animal behavior. If dogs, I'm told, are one of the first domesticated animals and they've been with us the longest, I would assume then that we would know more about them than any other animal. Correct? Yeah, that's that's the perception. And that is exactly what's not right. Um, <clears throat> you, you would think that, you know, the, the, the closest animal within reach, you know, the one we're around the most. Um, Ubiquitous, as Mark Durr says. Uh, exactly. Uh, it would be the one that we know the most about. And it's actually the one, scientifically, in terms of real research and the way we do science, the way we gain knowledge, you know, how science is done, we know very little, very, very little. And that's a point that I've made in, in a number of, of public talking engagements I've had and so on, is to talk a little bit about how ubiquitous dogs are, and yet um, how um, rare, how information is, and, and the actual facts. And so many times I've tried to deal with a behavior issue, a medical issue, whatever, in dogs, and somebody wants the citation. Somebody wants the science, and, and it, it, it doesn't exist. I've gone. I've looked for it. Uh, I'm an academic researcher. I know how to use a library and, and the powerful databases that are there. The University of Washington has one of the largest, you know, access to the world's largest library, and so I, I, I'm not missing it. <laughs> it's not there, and so an argument that I've made, you know, for the last couple of years is that there's a real breakdown here. Um, there's a lot of people who think, because they're so ubiquitous, there's a lot of people who think they know a lot about dog behavior. Um, opinions are, are cheap. <laughs> and, um, and, but as so often happens in science, what seems intuitive or even obvious is not necessarily true. That's why we have science. That's why there's a scientific method. That's why there's a process to carefully take the impressions and the intuition, which may be correct, but too often we've discovered it's not correct. And so to take that and weed out what's old wives' tales and what's fact. And um, it, we are so far behind other species. I mean, I, 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 I talk about other species. Wild what, what are some other species that we would know more about than dogs? Well, there are a number of things like, um, you know, where there are these model species that we use in animal behavior. A lot of this is driven by Monkeys, directions whales, of federal funding. Yeah. Sharks, uh, fruit, fruit, flies, fruit flies, you know, okay. because they reproduce quickly. You can study evolution in fruit flies. You know, so I talk about the fact that based on the, and, and some of this is because of the early research was done by someone who just happened to have access to a lot of ducks. And so we starting to hear more people are hearing about the importance of sensitive windows and imprinting and, and early experience in the, when the brain is, is ready and develops very early on to absorb who is my species, who is my social group. We know more about that in ducks and geese than we do in dogs because the early research was done in ducks and geese. And we know it's true in dogs, but the exact when, what age, 
Does that vary from breed to breed or breed group to breed group? We don't know. It hasn't been, you know, oh yeah, we sort of know that. Uh, we, obviously that's true, right? Um, but we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> most questions about let's say dog behavior issues that's what i deal with. i go in home deal with dog behavior what causes them uh what's the best fix for them um are they more common in some breeds than others that's all colored by my experience i have to be very careful as a scientist and i'm being more careful than most dog trainers and people veterinarians because i have the science background but you know i may have an impression that there is are horrible problems with german shepherds in this country due to inbreeding well, you talk about to colleagues around the country, it turns out that's only in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, so so I can't I got to be very careful not to say that as a as a generalization. Well, a lot of people are not so careful about that. It may be colored by your your the kind of approach you were originally taught. What we should be able to do is we should be able to do. Let's say let's do a scientific literature search. Let's go to the science. And for that dog breed or breed group. What's the best? What has been shown scientifically to be the best training method? What has been shown to be the best method for solving separation anxiety amongst all the different options that are out there? We, you know, just just go just go look it up. Look at the science. Look at the research that's been done. We can do that with other species. What's the best diet? What's the best way to reintroduce them to the wild? What, because the science has been done. No science with the dogs. I was talking, and, to, I was talking to a friend of the show about this, and he goes, "Well, Adam, you know." You know, there's so many people that are interested in dogs or who have opinions on dogs compared to the, the, the much fewer people who maybe look at the mating uh, habits of uh, orca, you know, and that's why you, everybody disagrees just because the, there's a greater pool of people to have an opinion, right? I mean, or is it just that we don't have the science? We, it's that we don't have the science. I mean, it's both. both. You do have a great number of people. Um, they have a great number of different experiences and backgrounds and approaches. And, you know, they, they, they knew this German shepherd when they were, and I'm just picking on German shepherds today, but you know, they knew this German shepherd when they were a kid. That's their impression of German shepherds. That's not how we do science. Can we characterize the average or typical temperament, personality, aggression levels, learning ability of German shepherds? Sure we can. Um, and compare that and and say that that is true of German shepherds versus basset hounds. And sure we can. The science is that so, we, we have the tools, so but it why? hasn't been done. Well, why? Then so, why don't we have all of this science? Why don't we have more science about dogs when it's when they've been with us for so long? So it's it's I think, you know, and you can get lots of different opinions about this, but I think it's because. It has not been funded by the federal government. Okay. It has not been supported. In fact, and it's even broader than the federal government and the support that's through you know, the National Science Foundation. It's even broader than that. Uh, foundations, private foundations. Um, you know, it hasn't. It, there's been a feeling that dogs are all around us, and so they're influenced by us. Um, we have obviously altered dogs. We have bred dogs. We have selected dogs. We have selected breeds. We've selected colors and shapes and, and behavior for work, right? And so we've manipulated dogs. So we can't do science on them. So we, they're not wild. We can't study very animal behavior, is, as is all of biology, is very much an evolutionary science. And so they've been tampered with. And so they are not natural. They are, you can't study what are the natural selective forces which shaped this color, that color, this, this size, altered the size of dog breeds because they're not natural. They're not under natural control anymore. And so the idea is as we were developing, you know, remember the ideas of evolution and evolutionary biology only started in the mid 1800s. With, with Darwin. It's relatively new. I mean, really. I mean, in the big picture of things. And as we were developing these things, they were, everyone was looking for, and what by this I mean private foundations and the federal government, good science and the, to, to show what evolution and behavior and physiology and genetics are under natural conditions. And dogs, dogs have been removed from that. And so dogs were not a good topic for that. 
And so we we didn't study them. I mean, um, you know, they were considered manipulated, so they weren't natural. My argument is that they do fall under selection, obviously. We have selected artificial selection. It's an experimental system. We can manipulate. We have manipulated the selection. That's an experiment. That's the most powerful kind of science that you can do. Um, but they've been removed from their natural environment. Uh, after 50,000 years of coevolution with humans, I think we can argue that the natural environment of a dog is in a human household. And I view that as their, quote, natural habitat. And there are selection pressures from breeding in natural in their natural habitat. And I think we can actually good, and this is a trend that's just beginning to catch on, that we can actually actually do some very good academic basic science with dogs as a model because we actually do know more <laughs> about them than, than, than other species. But that has not been the view of funding agencies that have driven forward you know, science in the United States and similarly in Europe and Canada and Germany and everywhere. I, th I think it's very much because they were considered sort of something artificial. And, and I think we're now sophisticated enough about how we understand evolution to actually be able to deal with that and say that, that not, that's not even a problem, that's actually um, a positive. We'll be right back with more Dr. Jim Ha in a moment. Check out our research links and join the audience at dogsinourworld.com. Adam will be right back with more Dogs in Our World. For more information about this show, visit the episodes page at dogsinourworld.com. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Support Dogs in Our World by making a donation. This fun and informative show is free to the public, but it's not free to produce. Every dollar donated goes directly towards production expenses. Help Adam improve the lives of dogs and people through more episodes just like this one. Donate today at dogsinourworld.com. Welcome back to the two-part season finale of Dogs in Our World. Before the break, we met Dr. Jim Ha, who is teaching us about the rather new science called applied animal behavior and how the dogs in our world are one of humankind's longest-running science experiments, but yet we arguably know less about them than, say, fruit flies. Back to my conversation with Dr. Jim Ha. Parts of the show is when our guests just kind of give us a little bit of a history Give us a little bit of a, a, of a background uh, as far as what supports this uh, field that we're investigating. Is there anything you could mention about maybe some of the first people who kind of kicked off animal behavior? It sort of depends on whether you're talking about animal behavior in general or whether you're talking about dog behavior. Um, well, I like certainly, talking about dogs. Yeah, so so in, in terms of the dog behavior world, you know, of course there was there was a, a a big breakthrough, a big change in the path of academic animal behavior science uh, in the 1970s um, when the See, pioneers. Every episode, I say I ask this question, and everybody says, "Oh, well, really, it was the 70s." I'm going to have well, to do a whole episode on what happened in the 70s. All of the wolves started coming back in the 70s. Uh, people started practicing what was then called pet therapy was in the 70s. Now you're saying that there is a major change in the 70s. Then you know why. They awarded a Nobel Prize to the forefathers of modern animal behavior science. They awarded a Nobel Prize to three Europeans that fundamentally established what we now consider modern animal behavior science. And um, Carl von Frisch, uh, Nico Tinbergen, and, um, and I buy mind blanks. We'll look it up. Um, we'll look it up. Don't worry. Uh, Conrad Lorenz. And so Conrad Lorenz and Nico Tinbergen and Carl von Frisch won the Nobel Prize in 1974. And that really established the field of ethology brought over from Europe as the modern animal behavior science. Um, What's the definition of ethology? 
ethology is a form of animal behavior. It's a it's a school of thought in animal behavior. Um, it's its opposition, I guess, is was from North America, developed in North America, and it's basically comparative psychology. Comparative psychology had a big focus on animals in the lab to control their environment, to eliminate variables, and learning. Behavior was all about learning. Ethology was a field that developed in Europe, and they had a different philosophy. They said you ha- they were Darwin DNA genetics-based, uh, evolutionary science. And they said, because we're in evolutionary science, we have to study the animals under their natural environment. So the ethologists were the ones going in the field. Uh, Jane Goodall was an ethologist. Um, um, and, and so on. The people who went in the field and lived with the animals and studied how they behave, how they socialize, how they reproduce, how they use tools in their natural environment are ethologists. And so there are these sort of two approaches, which the ethologist really said it's learning and it's genetics. It's a combination of the two and it's evolution. Ultimately. Nature and nurture. Yeah. And the comparative psychologist really said, we've got to do good science. We have to bring them in the lab to control the environment. Unfortunately, the result of that was just seeing abnormal behavior. Um, and it's all about learning. And the comparative psychologist really de- developed the field of learning theory. But Ethology really won. I mean, ethology really ended up taking the forefront and continues to be in the forefront, particularly after the confirmation it got from the Nobel Prize in 1974. That brings you up, you know, to the folks who really about that time started studying dog behavior and dog and cat behavior. And so those people are mostly still still practicing. A lot of the people who are really pioneers um, like Bradshaw. Um, the Hungarians, um, a lab, several groups in Hungary, um, have really pioneered dog behavior. The science of dog behavior is much more advanced and much more readily accepted and therefore better funded in Europe. All the, all really good canine science comes out of Europe at this time. And that's a shame. You know, I mean, they're doing a fantastic job, but, um, you know, we should be doing that over here as well. And we have the resources to do it. Um, but they certainly show us that it can be done. And, um, so we, we've, um, we've developed a few labs here. They're doing it. Um, Clive Wynn at Arizona state university pioneer early on. Um, and so a lot of the work is done by people who are academic animal behaviorists studying other things and their funding and their support from the federal government or from the university is for studying wild animals. But they are fascinated by the application of these ideas to dogs and cats and zoo animals and livestock. And so they're doing it as best they can on the side, really. And that's no way to run a really productive scientific program. back with more from Dr. Jim Ha. Let me know what you think of this show. Please let me know what you're thinking of this show by leaving a rating and review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Or heck, leave me a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Doing so actually helps new listeners find the show. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. We'll be right back with more dogs in our world. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. You can also message us directly via the contact page at dogsinourworld.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Why Does My Dog is a mobile-friendly resource that helps strengthen the bond between dogs and their owners. Take our videos with you on walks or anytime you're on the go. Learn how to train your dog with modern positive reinforcement techniques and watch entire lessons in short videos so you can spend less time training and more time playing. 
Discover new products that help improve your dog's quality of life. Have a burning question about dogs? Send us an email. WhyDoesMyDog.com Dog info on the go. Welcome back to part one of my conversation with Dr. Jim Ha. In the last segment, Dr. Ha gave us our history fix and introduced us to some of the pioneers of animal behavior science. Now, let's continue this special extended interview and jump right back into it. When I first was thinking about having you on the show and wanting you to kind of teach us about actual research and what's going on with research and thinking about all of these, thinking about how every episode, you know, the more I learn about these dogs, the more I realize I don't know, right? And like every time I kind of learn something new, it just makes me hungry and kind of want to keep going. And I kind of had that old sound bite that was popular for a while from uh, Donald Rumsfeld when he was Secretary of Defense uh, under, I think, uh, Bush Jr. And he had that, 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 that quote, you know, there's known there knowns, known, there's knowns. known there unknowns, there's know, unknown unknowns. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there's some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns the ones we don't know we don't know <laughs> and let's just see if we can just quickly just start with that and use that as a quick model to kind of give me an understanding of first of all what do we know about dogs what can we say for certain is everyone can agree on about what we know about dogs is that too broad of a question no in fact i've put together my own opinions on that again if you go to the to the literature um there's a lot we do know because we can draw parallels between dogs and other related species. So for instance, a lot of cell biology and biochemistry, a lot of physiology, a lot of anatomy, um, we know very well in dogs because that's, for instance, came out of veterinary work. Um, and so we do know a lot about anatomy and, and, and morphology, physiology, because we needed to know that for medication. We needed to know that for drugs. Um, you get into you know endocrinology, the hormone system, and um, but we know a lot about manipulating physiology in terms of antibiotics and things like that because that's all the same with any mammal, and dogs are no no different than any other mammal, including humans. But in terms of uh, hormones and and fertility, hormones and reproduction, and especially where we find specializations and big differences across species of mammals is in stress hormones, how animals respond to stress. And so we can't generalize as much because we know that different species of monkeys react differently. Monkeys react differently to stress physiologically than mice and rats. So we have to go study it in mice and rats or in monkeys. If that's what we're interested in, we have to study it in dogs. We can't extrapolate from other work as well, when you talk about stress and hormones, um, and the work has not been done. Um, we, we know a lot about development, embryology, and how the fetus develops, because that's the same in all mammals. But we know very little about how the brain develops. Oh, because that differs from species to species. And so then you know, there are some basic patterns, but there are differences in different species because of the environment in which they evolved. And there are so we know very little about the development of the dog brain. We know very little about the sensitive windows. We have these broad brushes about when you should socialize your puppy. Does that differ from breed to breed and breed group to breed group? We don't know. We, there's been very little work. It's been done on a couple of breeds. Enough people know it's, it's different in other breeds. But that, you know, and, and that's an impression, <laughs> not so, a scientific fact. So things like Gen brain genetics, you know. <clears throat> So things like brain development. Genetics is another. <laughs> Sorry. This is why I hate. Yeah. This is why I hate these Skype interviews. The timing is terrible. The nuances are not there. Yeah. But like you said, though, the yeah. the the still not knowing enough about brain development and brain development with uh you know within species different species or different breeds. Um, I guess that could be the known unknowns, right? Those are yeah. the things that we're still yeah. trying to That's figure right. out. We I know mean, we I, haven't figured out. Yeah, we know. I mean, there's things I can identify them, and, and I've done that in, in presentations, and, and I have the PowerPoint slides that outline each of the major fields in, in, and that 
of biology and that that all of them contribute in some way to behavior uh, that's i mean that's my thing is the behavior that's ultimately where we want to go understanding behavior and the cell biology affects behavior anatomy affects behavior development you know affects behavior um psychology you know affects behavior we know a fair bit about learning in dogs because of training uh but that's not all of psychology there, there's a lot more behavioral genetics and, and innate and instincts and we know nothing about and so uh, so there's been this sort of patchwork um knowledge and research and you can there's lots of publications in the scientific literature about dogs but they're about drug interactions they're about blood glucose levels and diabetes they're about which all are important i'm not saying not important but it's been very very patchy and that's i think another really important point about how the study of behavior in dogs has progressed because there has not been any kind of common denominator to the funding to the financial so i mean it comes down to money research is not cheap and good quality research is definitely not cheap and because there's been no common organization like the national science foundation or whatever driving it and organizing it and and saying yes or no to, to ideas the work that has been done in dog behavior cognition learning etc has been very patchwork. An investigator has a personal interest, right? Or a personal opportunity to study this. A student who is especially interested in this or that feature of behavior dogs, pointing and hand gestures or something. And they go and study that. And there's an isolated paper, a couple of papers, good science, but it's it's in a vacuum. It's surrounded by a vacuum. It's not laid down on a foundation of knowledge of, let's say, dog cognition that we have built up, which we have built up for lizards, which we have built up for fruit flies, which we have built up, you know, for, for even uh, for crows, which we have not built up for dogs. And so it's these facts and topics, which are fascinating and important, but we don't know how to interpret them because they're not laid down on any kind of foundation. So one of the, the things that, that I have pushed for for quite some time is for canine science, let's say broadly, to really sit down together and figure out what is it we know about dog behavior? What is it we need to know about dog behavior? That gets into your known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And, and, um, and how do we get there? Right. A, a path forward. And so I've argued for years, last few years, that we really as a science, as a field, canine science needs to develop a path forward, a, a white paper, um, a series of projects done in the right order. Right. Um, and bef before we can even go and ask for funding. Um, from the food industry, from private foundations, from the National Science. We can go to the National Science Foundation and say, we've got our act together. We think we have a path here of, for pretty good science that's based on the fundamental principles of, of science and biology and behavior. Um, and we'll learn a lot about evolution and we'll learn a lot about genetics um, that will apply to other species. That's what they want. Um, but I don't think that has happened. And we've sort of backed into canine science because it's been the what is it the poor stepsister or whatever you know it's, it's been the it's been the backwater um for for so long are there any things that recent science have taught us that we had wrong before it has was there something that people kind of were were set in their impressions as you say um and then maybe science has changed does that make sense what have we recently yeah, learned mean, that we thought was different i mean the huge the huge thing is is the role of dominance um early training methods uh, were all developed by the military um, for canine use, you know, the uh, military dogs, police dogs. And it all relied on fundamentally false ideas about dominance in canines. And I mean wolves and coyotes and dogs. 
um, and the whole movement to the use of positive reinforcement and away from the pack theory, I need to be a better leader uh, kinds of approaches, um, you know, is now the science is now coming out. There are a few papers that are now coming out and actually testing those methods versus all other methods. And are actually showing that as we have changed over the decades, we've changed our ideas, our science, our knowledge, improved our knowledge of wolf and other wild dog dominance hierarchies. Um, it's gradually that new information and refinement and sophistication in, okay, so how do wolves really use dominance? How do they display dominance? When do they show dominance hierarchies? Um, oh, that's not what we thought. That's that's a much more refined picture. Now we need to, again, we need to extend that to our companion dogs um, as appropriate. Um, but we don't have the science to really base it on, but we're getting there. So the whole idea of social behavior and dominance and the role of dominance and, and, the, and the role of aversive training versus positive reinforcement training, you know, has really been a revolution. Um, it's based on very little science. Um, what science is there says that's the way to go. But I, I'm, I would not as a scientist, if I was being completely independent and saying, you know, what kind of science are we basing these decisions on? It's weak. But it's the best we've got. And, you know, we've got to move move forward with that. The whole idea of genetics, behavioral genetics, the dog genome, and what we have learned about truly the relationship amongst different breeds and breed groups of dogs and how closely related the genetics are in some breeds of dogs to, to wild wolf ancestors. And therefore, we would suggest their behavior similar to wild wolf ancestors, though that has not been verified. Um, but that would be our hypothesis. And how distantly related the genetics are in other breeds from our wild wolf and why would you think that they would act anything like a wolf? Because their genetics are so different. Um, that's a revolution. That's been a revolution. How do we follow up on that? Have we followed up on that? Um, can we generate hypotheses from the genetics, then generate hypotheses about behavior based on the genetics? Yes, we can. Have we? Yes, we have. Have we tested those? No, there's no money. Um, you know. And so um, there's a clear path there. Um, but it has not been articulated and it, and it hasn't been funded as accepted as good science. Um, and I think it's critical to the welfare of the animals, to the welfare owners, questions about aggression. How do we make, how do we reduce aggression in dogs? You know, how do we increase aggression in dogs? So we don't do that. We have very little information, less so than we do in monkeys and things like that. If you've listened to any of my other episodes, it's likely that myself or a guest uh, probably stated, you probably heard us say that every dog is unique, right? Uh, Dr. Ha agrees, but adds just another layer to that claim. Uh, social behavior and the dominance hierarchy, so much more needs to be done with that. A revolution in fundamental basic animal behavior science in recent years has been personality. Um, what we refer to usually as individual differences in behavior predictable individual differences in behavior. And, and these concepts taken from human work and now being extended to animals, including animals in the wild, has, I, has been a wave of new ideas and new concepts and new predictions and, you know, and new knowledge. And um, applying that again, let's, let's apply that to the animals in our world around us. Um, how does personality affect what role does personality play in the behavior of dogs and cats? So essentially you're trying um, to provide scientific proof for what nearly every one of my guests states, which is every dog is unique. Um, some varied science is being done. Um, and I think it's going to revolutionize how we interact. Because what we're finding, for instance, is not every dog is unique. There are patterns, just like there are patterns in humans. Uh, type A, that's where type A personalities came from. Type mm. A personality is a cluster of a certain type of personality on several different dimensions. And type B is a certain, a cluster of certain, you know, and because uh, there were these groups of humans that tended to have a common set of 
personalities, and we call them type A. And there's same thing in dogs, same thing our science is doing. This is there's a lot of the research that I've done, and I originally did this research in primates. Um, and now I've extended it and brought it over and we're doing, I'm actively publishing research on personality and individual differences in behavior in dogs and cats. And that's what my graduate students are working on. Folks, help me help Dr. Ha get more of this kind of information out to the people who want it. At the very heart of this project is a mission. Could you, could you consider making a donation to this project that I call Dogs in Our World? All donations only go towards production expenses. And the main goal of this show is to improve the lives of dogs by educating people. Um, and it does. It costs me money every month to keep the hosting fees going and, uh, and uh, keep this show available to the public. And not to mention all the other money I've spent on this thing over the years. So... Please, you know, if you could, I would really appreciate it. And thank you to those of you who have. Please donate whatever you can at dogsinourworld.com. All right. I know it's awkward for me, too, to ask. All right. Enough begging. Okay. I get it. Coming up, we'll have more of this free lecture and free consultation from the wonderful Dr. Jim Ha. Show your support for Dogs in Our World by visiting the donation page at dogsinourworld.com. You can also support the show by leaving a rating or comment in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We want to hear from you. Send us your comments and questions by using the contact page at dogsinourworld.com. Welcome back to Dogs in Our World. I'm Adam Winston. In the last part of the show, Dr. Jim Ha addressed a claim that has been repeatedly made in this show, and that is that every dog is unique. Uh, He agreed, but also challenged me to think about how maybe it's okay to sometimes look at dog personality more generally. Similar to what we've done with the grouping of, say, type A personalities in humans. Interesting stuff, right? Let's let's jump right back into my conversation with Dr. Jim Ha. This world or profession that I'm in, or passion that I have, everybody uses science. It, every side of each debate, they say, well, there's science, well, there's proof, well, there was a study that was done over here, right? So how do I know then when I'm looking at good science, or how do I know when to believe someone when they say, well, you should look at more of the science, Right. Well, you know, I, I tell people a couple of things. One is get educated. You know, how do you know how to buy a good TV? You go and you get educated, right? And you can go and get educated about science as well. That's what my book is coming out. That's what it's about, is trying to teach people what good science looks like. That's what our online courses are doing for, you know, now we're up to hundreds of students online in our, in our applied animal behavior courses at the University of Washington. A fundamental principle we're trying to teach them is what does good science look like and how to find it. But there are other simple rules about good science. Replication. Uh, Yeah, there's something called random chance that's out there in the world. And so you can do one study, good or bad, and you can find one fact, one finding, and um, and, and and it's there. That's what you found. That's what you found. That's what you found. I mean, that's that's fine. But in science, it's not science until it's replicated. So one real good principle is if somebody says there is a study that shows this, that, or the other thing, I don't buy it. Show me two or three or four studies. Um, Always look at the scope of the study. In dogs, this is real easy. What breeds did he do it in? There can be a beautiful study that was done in German Shepherds. But I just told you that the genetics across breeds of dogs ranges hugely, amazingly varied. So why would we expect German Shepherds to respond exactly the same way as poodles? Um, and so if they did the study and they had hundreds of dogs and they crossed a wide range of breeds, I love it. That's what we're looking for. Generalizability. Then maybe we can generalize those results. Hard to find that (laughs) because that takes time and that takes money. Um, 
but but uh, one of the big tools I teach students is is to look uh, uh, is to look for the repeatability. I don't want to see one study. What we find in science is you'll get a second study says the same thing, third study says the same thing, fourth study looks a different breed finds the same thing. Okay, now we have what we call the preponderance of evidence. One of the cool things that I learned from you when I'm trying to kind of um, decipher uh, research is, like you said, who did they study, right? Did they study, was this study done on a bunch of dogs that are in a shelter, you know, where they're, where they're a little already probably generally a little stressed. It's not, they're not in a home environment where they, you know, where they're probably much more comfortable. Or was the study done on only a bunch of military working dogs who could have, who were possibly born and bred for that job and born into that job and they only know each other and they only know that military world, you know? Or was this research done on a bunch of home family pets who have a balanced life um, and were kind of brought into a campus for an hour to be recorded, you know? And that really, you know, helped me first. That's the first thing I look at now when I read this stuff is, okay, who were the dogs, right? Where were the dogs? Abs- absolutely, absolutely. And remember what I said about dogs have evolved just like every other animal. Dogs have evolved to exist in a particular habitat. And for dogs, it's basically in the home. For most breeds of dogs, it's in the home, around the house, in a familiar area, uh, often a very limited familiar area. Uh, and that's not a negative. That's just how, how we have them, right? They're, they're in our home. And when you take them out of that, so, and, but it, it could be a military kennel for German Shepherds and Malinois and so on. Fine. But think about the study. So you were just mentioning, oh, are these a bunch of family household dogs that were brought into a lab for testing? Is that their natural? It's like bringing your dog into the veterinarian for a behavior issue. And the veterinarians, I don't know, eight or nine times out of 10 say anxiety. Because they're looking at your dog at the vet. In the moment. Clinic. And what, what do most dogs look like? I mean, most dogs are pretty anxious about that, at least a little anxious about that, right? Whereas when I go into the home to see that dog, I insist. For my work, I only see cases in the home. I don't have a clinic. I don't bring them out of their environment. I go to where the behavior is happening, usually in the home, and see what they look like there. And it's a very different dog. And so you have to think about what kind of dogs, was it a limited range of breeds of dogs that was in the study? Um, ask those kinds of questions. And, you know, and those results might apply to military German shepherds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where the problem really comes in, is generalizability and, and replication. Of course, you've already touched on it, but just to drive it home, tell me in your words, why is it important to learn about dogs? Why should we want to have more organized research about dogs? Well, I think we have to know who we're working with. Obviously, dogs are, and along with cats, are, and, you know, the story is even far worse for cats. But for dogs, there's such an important role for them in our life. They are still, in some cases, working for us, assistance dogs, military dogs, canine dogs, Certainly, the role as companionship has has you know blossomed in in recent years. Um, it's something like a sixty five billion dollar industry in the United States this year. And that still just gives growing, you an idea, and st- oh, easily growing. And and so they're so close to us. You know, we have no problem saying we need to know more about children pediatric medication, pediatric disease, pediatric behavior, psychology. Um, but these, these dogs are becoming our companions. I'll even go as far as to say, you know, substitute children for, for some people. And, and there's nothing that's fantastic. That is absolutely the role that they're here for. And, but I'm just shocked at what we don't know about them. They're so close to us. And by close to us, I can also, you know, mention things like dog bites. 
you know, uh, dog injury, the, the number of dog bite cases, um, the rate of dog bites going up as we bring more dogs into more crowded urban situations, um, off leash dog parks. Don't get me started. Um, you know, and so what's going on there? How do we better design? I, I was asked by the city of Seattle. We want to have you be a consultant to better design of off-leash dog parks in Seattle because it's such a high rate of injuries and maulings and, and problems. And we want you to review all of the science on that. And I, I just, I just laughed. <laughs> I said, I can give you my impressions as a person who knows dog behavior very deeply and has worked with it for a very long time. And I'm also a specialist in social behavior in mammals of other species. So I, I understand the basic principles. I can give you my opinions on the best way to design dog off-leash dog areas. But I cannot back that up with science. Because I cannot it's not there, give you the, you're saying. It's not, it's not there. It's not there. And, and that's, that's amazing. We have the tools. It can be done. It's not and there. dog parks are everywhere. Dog parks are in nearly every single city and uh, largely populated areas. So you would think then that there would be science on something that goes into sitting, city planning, right? Yep. And they're begging for it. They're not funding it, <laughs> but they're begging for it. And, and, and it's dogs are getting killed. People are being injured. Uh, I haven't even looked up how many millions and billions of dollars in medical bills just for dog bites of dogs and of humans, you know, veterinary and, and medical bills. Um, and and it's, it, it's, it's, I think it's a public health issue. I mean, I think it's a public health issue, certainly in the United States, um, that, that is really shocking. Um, but it's it's convincing the powers that be, the funding groups, and, and I think this has to move to private foundations. I think it has to move to the pet food industry, um, besides just you know the, the the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, and and the government funding that that has driven so much good science in the United States for many years. But you know, I think there are other other pots of money out there that that perhaps should be responsible for helping to support kind of this. But on the as I say, on the scientist side, we need to have our act together, and we need to be able to put together a cohesive view of where the gaps are because there's a lot of them, and how to get how to get you know through those gaps. What science needs to be done, and how we do that science. I think that's a great place right there to end part one of my conversation with Dr. Jim Ha. I hope you guys appreciate this kind of um, extended interview approach that I've, I've been taking with this last episode or I guess last installment of this series, right? Dr. Ha, he shared so much wonderful information during our chat and, and I was saving our interview for last because I knew that he would really just drive this whole series home and that he also shares the same mission as this show. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to Dogs in Our World using your podcast app or service, whatever it is you use for podcasts. Even though the first season is coming to an end, don't worry because I still have some stuff that I want to upload and get up into your ears. So definitely stay subscribed to the podcast feed. Stay subscribed. You can also subscribe to my email list and join the audience over at dogsinourworld.com. All right, part two of my conversation with Dr. Jim Ha is already available and you can listen to it now. My interview with Dr. Ha only gets better. You don't want to miss it. So I'll see you over there. <laughs>